You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I just was looking this morning, and it seemed appropriate, after finishing 1 Corinthians, that we go into Leviticus. No, 2 Corinthians. So let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us in your scripture everything we need for life and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look into your word, we know that you will meet us there. We know that you will change our lives through your word, by your Holy Spirit, by grace. And so as we expectantly look for that this morning, as we read your word and as we study it, we ask you, Lord, to give us insight, illumination, and wisdom that we might honor you in all that we do today and tomorrow and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's read uh, the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. And I didn't realize how hard that was going to be to see, so the scripture was good. For what is seen, <laughs> but what is unseen is on the screen. So, <laughs> it was uh, unintentional. I'll fix it for next time. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 1. We'll start with verse 1. That's a good idea. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God or by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you, as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers and thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. 
Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. But as God is faithful, (coughs) our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. So remember the, the time we spent in 1 Corinthians, the church that seemed to excel in getting things wrong. Now, in between, well, let me just bust into this here. So in cha- Acts chapter 18, we're going to look at the founding of the church. So we'll get to that in just a minute here. This is uh, our little map. Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae. Rome, to give you some context, some geographic context. Um, I don't know if you can see that. That which is unseen is easy to... (laughs) I'll work on that. You know, you'd think I'd be doing these for a while. So, anyway. Paul's Paul's itinerary, or the, the, the timeline, for the writing of the letters. So... The first thing he does with regard to Corinth is he founds the church in Corinth in 50 to 52 A.D., somewhere in there. Acts chapter 18, 1 through 11. After these things, he left Athens. If you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 18, 1 through 11. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning, Paul was, in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God. So Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth at the beginning. We looked at that when we studied 1 Corinthians. Founding the church, teaching, and notice that n- numerous Jews came to the Lord. Even though he, he had to shake his the dust off his garments and get out of the synagogue, still some came to the Lord through his preaching. So then he leaves after a year and a half, and in about 56 A.D., do I have this? No, that's the outline. We'll get We'll get there. And about 56 A.D., um, here in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 11, he says this, For I have been informed 
concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. My, oh, my, that was an understatement. There were more than quarrels. And then in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 17, he says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. So those two, those two scriptures give us the context that that uh, word had been delivered to Paul that there were problems in this church that he founded and spent 18 months at. So then he writes the first letter. And remember, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, concerning these things or answering these things, there's, there's clearly there are a number of questions that the Corinthians had sent back to Paul. What about this? What about that? How come this? How come that? Kind of like Lanny, you know. Always asking questions. Good questions, Lanny. And so Paul answered those questions one by one throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. So in first, in about 56 or 57 AD, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 5, 9 through 11, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with moral people, talking about a different letter. I did not at all mean with the moral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he isn't a moral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such an one. So that would have been in 56 or 57 A.D., then probably in the fall of 57 A.D., and that's all up there, if you can go for it. You young people can probably see it. I can't see it from here. It looked really good on my computer screen. Yeah, you can move your chairs right up on the stand. In 57 A.D., uh, he writes 56, 57, he wrote the first letter. We just talked about that. Then he has an emergency visit late in 57 AD, 2 Corinthians 2.1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Speaking of the time he came to them, and it must have been a difficult coming. So then he writes what they call, what is called the severe letter. Now, I searched the Internet, and I couldn't find the severe letter. I don't think God left it for us for whatever reason. But I can bet you someone's come up with something, concocted it. He wrote this severe letter probably in 57. 2 Corinthians 2.4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He took the time in this difficult and would have been a very unforgiving situation. He wrote to them about the difficulties they were having. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 12, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's what his letter did. For you were, for any, let's see, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow that the world produces, the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote it to you, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one of offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. He wrote to them a severe letter, but obviously there was praise as well as, uh, calling out the wrong behavior that was happening in Corinth still. So then, so now we've got, he founds the church in 56 AD. 
He writes the first letter in 56, late 56, early 57. He has an emergency visit in 57, late 57. Then he writes the severe letter. Then he had an intention to go to meet Titus, which was scrapped. And that's where he's talking about, I intended, I wasn't vacillating. God changes our plans, doesn't he? Has he ever changed yours? Don't shake your fist at him. He knows what he's doing. He had an intention to meet Titus in Troas. In Troas. It was scrapped. Paul goes to Macedonia in late 57. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So he finds Titus. He hears of the church responding. The Corinthian church is responding. They're repenting. Their sorrow is a godly sorrow. They're regretting what they did. They're responding. They're changing. Uh, and he writes 2 Corinthians, the book we're studying, we're going to study now, in 57, 58, late 57, early 58 AD, spring of 58, very likely. 2 Corinthians 7, 11 through 16. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, uh, we've read this before, but there's a little bit added. Um, so although I wrote for, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you, Corinthians, by you all. He was, he was southern, by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice in everything that I have confidence in you. This is a little different tack from a group that were, had incest and, and were throwing, were suing each other over the silliest things and had messed up the Lord's Supper. They were responding and Paul is delighted. Then, and just for your information, the last visit that he has with them is possibly recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. He says, when he had gone, or Luke says, when Paul, he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. This is likely the last visit he had in Corinth, and it was probably... Well, I didn't write the time down, but it was later on. So then I had an outline. I was going to print that puppy out and give it to you, but I didn't, so I'm not going to tease you with it. Getting ahead of himself. Second Corinthians, with all of that, was probably written in the fall of 57 AD and likely only a few months after writing 1 Corinthians. The letter was delivered to the Corinthian church by Titus, who had brought back a report informing Paul of their reception, the Corinthian reception of the first letter, and the rebukes it contained. Apparently, Titus's report was encouraging, but it also, it also contained information that some in Corinth were questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. Likely, likely, this is my surmising and others surmising, it was instigated by the Judaizers that plagued Paul wherever he went. It's almost like they chased him. They were, they were negative groupies, just trying to mess things up. Titus's report included information about questions of Paul's ability to speak, his unwillingness to accept support from the church at Corinth, and of some continuing 
wicked behavior in Corinth. 2 Corinthians was written ahead of his intended second visit, and he tries to get off all of the rebuking he needs to do. He tries to get all of the rebuking he needs to do out of the way in the letter so that his primary purpose and the second visit will be to collect the gift that is to be sent to Jerusalem. Most scholars recognize that this is the most biographical and least doctrinal epistle that Paul has written. It contains quite a bit of personal information, and it is thus very useful to those who would go into ministry as a study guide. How to act. Paul has to deal still with a recalcitrant but reforming church. And that is the norm in our plan, in our, in our lives. None of us are perfect, and all of us are on the road to reform as we have begun in our sanctification journey. An overview of the entire epistle reveals several things. I actually, what I do is I read through the book and I jot down notes. Then I read through it again and I try to flesh out the notes. And so this is kind of, you're going to get a dose of my read, view, read through here. So an overview of the entire epistle reveals several things. In chapter 1, Paul reminds the Corinthians that both sufferings and comfort are abundant in Christ. Isn't that true? Sufferings are abundant. We have been called, we are worthy to suffer, is what many of the great saints of old have said. Polycarp said that. He was grateful to be deemed worthy to suffer for Christ, because he was burning at the stake. Or whatever, was he killed by animals or was he burnt? I can't. He was burnt. Okay. Paul reminds the Corinthians that, and that they are to train these comforts and these afflictions are to train Christians to trust in God and not in themselves. He wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't vacillating in his desire to come see them, and he praises them in, in, for standing firm in their faith. In chapter 2, we're just going to get kind of an overview here, he reminds them that he had come to them once in sorrow, and that through his though his letters were difficult, they were intended to communicate instruction, correction, and love. And he reminds them of that. He caused them to forgive the one censured in, he asked them and caused them to forgive the one censured in his first letter. Unable to find Titus later on, he apparently is separated from the travelers and gone to Macedonia at some point. Then in chapter three, Paul professes his confidence in God to sanctify and grow the Christians. God, who is at work in you, will continue the thing that he has started, as he says in Philippians. They have become our, they have become or are becoming his letter of Christ to others. He compares the ministries of the Old and New Testament, that of law and condemnation, to that of righteousness and glory. Israel, he says, was unable to understand the import of what Moses had said, especially about the, the Messiah, because there was a veil over their heart. Turning to the Lord removes that veil. Many in the synagogue did not want that, but some did. Paul uses the word ministry often, and this chapter starts out with that focus. He uses that word 51 times in his writings, of which 20 occur in 2 Corinthians. 50, 20 of the 51 uses of the word ministry occur in 2 Corinthians. It is a calling. It's not just a job. It's a calling. You ever have somebody saying, well, I'm just doing my job? We recoil at that, and rightly so. Paul never said that when he was delivering the gospel and building the church. He never said, well, I'm just doing my job. It was his ministry. It was his calling. He agonized over it. He reminds the Corinthian about his unwillingness to walk in deceit and craftiness and about his careful treatment of the Word of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who will not see, and he doesn't want that to occur in Corinth, nor to keep occurring. The blinding of minds can happen 
anytime. The Corinthians tended to focus on the here and now, and Paul reminds them that what is seen is temporary, which was what was up there, but what is unseen is eternal. Touching on the Greek tendency to focus on the body in chapter 5, Paul will remind the Corinthians that their bodies are not the end of all things, but that what is coming, they're dwelling in heaven, and the glorified body that Christ will give them is far more important. Remember the issues in, in chapter 16, when there were those who were preaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. This, he starts out in first Corinthians, second Corinthians, using, we'll see that when we get to just about the middle of the, well, the first third of the chapter. He reminds them again about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and although he prefers to be with Christ, his main ambition is to please the Lord, and so he continues in the work of spreading the gospel of Christ. His work in the gospel is because of his love for and fear of the Lord. He's not worried about being commended. Those in Christ are new creatures. He tells the Corinthians that they are a new work, and as such, they have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You've been reconciled. Now you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's true today, as we have been reconciled. We are now the bearers of the ministry of reconciliation. The same reconciliation that they sweetly experienced at salvation. Chapter 6 reminds the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain, but to respond to it. He and his fellow workers were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were sleepless, they were hungry. In many ways they suffered, but in all, their, their response to the whole, but through it all, in response to the work of the Holy Spirit in their, in their lives, they learned purity, knowledge, and many other character qualities that he will detail. And let me stop there for a second. I read that as I've studied through and, and begin reading some of the commentaries, and they, they remarked that this is the least doctrinal. It struck me that somehow the Holy Spirit snuck doctrine in there. And we're going to see that. It's, it may be the least, but there's plenty of doctrinal truth that will just be exciting. This is the best book in the Bible. For now. He's not worried about being commended. Those in Christ are new creatures, and he tells the Corinthians, I already read that. You ever get lost in your own notes? Yeah, okay, yeah. Genuine love occupied the hearts of Paul and, and the fellow apostles. Even though they were lied about, branded as deceitful, punished, and had all their earthly goods taken from them, their love still caused them to press on. And he encourages the Corinthians not to be bound together with unbelievers in partnerships because believers have nothing in common with unbelievers. And that's an interesting section that's actually quite doctrinal. In chapter 7, he begs the Corinthians to receive him. He is confident about them and he even brags about them. Titus had brought them, brought the, the apostles, Paul and his, and his fellow travelers, a good report about the Corinthian goings-on. Titus told Paul that the Corinthians mourned for him they prayed for him, and they had zeal for him. What a change. What a change from 1 Corinthians. Knowing that he had caused them sorrow with one of his previous letters still brought him a measure of comfort because it caused them to repent. And for that, he was truly grateful. Sometimes when we, when we bring difficult, condemnation isn't the right word, difficult, um, when we have to be firm with people, and say things that they don't want to hear, maybe. But it brings repentance. It's a delight. But it's hard to get through that, isn't it? It's hard to get through that. Sometimes we would rather just leave it alone. It caused him to repent. For that, he was truly grateful. Here, Paul delineates the two kinds of sorrow, one which is, one which is according to the will of God and produces repentance without, leading, without regret, leading to salvation, and the other, the sorrow of the world producing death. 
Obviously, the Corinthians had a sorrow produced in them that caused repentance without regret. Many were saved, and many who were already saved were made right with God. When Titus came, they treated him with fear and trembling. And they treated him well. And in doing so, it was, and Paul notes this, as though they treated Paul well. <laughs> for And for this, Paul was also grateful. In chapter 8, Paul details the story of the Macedonians who, though in deep poverty, contribute greatly to the church in Jerusalem. They first gave, he said, of themselves and then of their supplies. And in this chapter, Paul will challenge the Corinthians to follow suit. He makes certain they know he is challenging them and not commanding them. Not commanding. Their willingness had not led to completion, and so he encourages them to get it done regarding the, the, uh, <laughs> the gift to be taken to the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, Paul sent along what would have been in those in that time a celebrity, a church celebrity. Now we don't know who it was. Um, the only in, in the early church, although this person is never named, some people think it was Barnabas, some Mark, some Luke, but there's no way to know for certain. And I think that's remarkable that the Bible doesn't celebrate celebrity like we do today. This apparently. When you read through and, and look at the, hit, hit the context and other scriptures that comment on it, this person was pretty important, but not even named. So be it. He calls Titus, his messenger, to the churches, reminding them to give glory to Christ. And then he challenges them, the Corinthians, to openly demonstrate their love for all those who are working for the gospel, including Titus and the others. Chapter 9 continues his urging to the Corinthians to see their gift see to their gift, the money gift, the gift to the Jerusalem church, and to see it through. He doesn't want to find them unprepared regarding this gift because it would be a shame to both them and to himself. The principle of cheerful giving is established here. Grudging givers will receive a grudging blessing. I'm trying to think about that. What's a grudging blessing? But cheerful givers who have purposed in their heart to give delightedly will be blessed delightedly. And then he encourages the Corinthians that those who will be, will be blessed by their giving will glorify God, and that should be their first concern in everything. Some were still disparaging the apostle in Corinth, in the apostle Paul. In chapter 10, he details this, acknowledging that they claimed that he walked according to the flesh. He used this false accusation to remind the Corinthians that they were to get, they were to get spirit, they were in spiritual darkness. And he wants them to focus their warfare on spiritual things and not on each other. If they're falsely accusing him, that was a spiritual thing. Some of them apparently put their mouths in gear before their brains were engaged and said whatever came to mind. You know anybody like that? All of those that know me know someone like that. So there's your answer. My dad used to say, engage your mind, engage your brain. <laughs> I don't know if I ever am going to do that someday. He wanted them, in this chapter is where that famous section about taking your thoughts captive. He wanted them to take their thoughts captive and even in their thoughts be obedient to Christ. He does allow that his letters can be a bit terrifying, but at the same time he knows that there were those in Corinth who bragged that Paul himself didn't frighten them. I ain't afraid of Paul. Who's afraid of the big bad apostle? These people were guilty of believing their own press releases and speaking to the choir about their own power. He wants them to stop these silly machinations and preach the gospel and let their boasting only be in the Lord. Don't try to better me. Believe and preach for the Lord. Don't try to be somebody special. Believe and preach for the Lord. Give the glory to God. 
Some were still accusing Paul of being foolish. And chapter 11 details this in his concern that they were being led away from the simplicity. He was worried, concerned, that they were being led away from the simplicity and purity of being devoted to just Christ himself. Apparently, as in Galatia, the Corinthians were allowing teachers to come in preaching a different Christ. Can't, that's Well, I'll get into that when we get to chapter 11. <laughs> so it'll be like a year and a half from now. They bore this well, he said, these fake, false preachers. But when he came preaching the true gospel and doing it in Corinthian without any charge, in fact, he says, I had to rob other churches, taking money from them so that I could serve the Corinthians free, so that he could serve the Corinthians free. They were, they were complaining that he wasn't taking their money, wasn't taking their support. <clears throat> they disparaged him about that. The churches in Macedonia, he said, had supplied what was necessary for him to come to Corinth. He would continue to preach and continue to love the Corinthians, but he calls out the false apostles that came into Corinthian, into Corinth, preaching a false gospel, and he even names them workers of Satan. Now, it's black and white. If you're preaching the gospel out of a pure heart because you're submissive to the Lord, you love him, and that's your calling, that you're, not your job, but your calling, that's a true preacher. If you're doing it for any wrong reason, if you're teaching the wrong things, if you're, name the mistake in your life, then you're a false apostle. And Paul calls them out. He calls them workers of Satan. Workers of Satan. Jesus did the same thing. The Corinthians still struggled with emulating wisdom, but they were lifting up false teachers who claimed to be wise, but were actually very foolish people. Those teachers, he said, were taking advantage of the Corinthians, claiming to be Hebrews, Israelites, descendants of Abraham, and servants of Christ. He then retails the horrors he went through to bring the gospel to the world, including to the Corinthians. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And, and we'll look at it. It was 39 lashes, he said, I received. They had a 40-lash maximum. Well, we'll just do 39, 27 times. You know, just very, very unkind. Very, very vic vicious and wicked. He was beaten, stoned, and shipwrecked. He was in constant danger from robbers, false brethren, Gentiles, and many other. He, he, here he reminds them of his escape from the city, being let down through a window in the wall and, and escaping Eretus, the king, in Damascus. His love for them compelled him to continue. The final In chapter 12, it begins with his third-person story about being caught up to paradise, and that's going to be an interesting study. And there's doctrine there. And hearing directly from Christ, he has misgivings about even taking credit for this. The revelations that were given to him were so exalted that he had to be given a thorn in the flesh so that he would not exalt himself because of how dangerous self-exaltation is. Look at me. I was in, I actually received a message directly from Christ. By the way, footnote, nobody today receives a message from Christ. That is finished. The gospel and the canon of scripture is closed. Thomas just held up his Bible. You do receive it there. I was getting to that, but thank you. Footnote, you receive it from your Bible. That's where we get everything, the Scripture. What does what your bumper sticker say? Do you want to hear from God? Read your Bible. Do you want to hear Him speak out loud? Read your Bible out loud. Next question. Because pride is a monster. He begged God to take away the thorn, but God chose not to. And he reminds the Corinthians that sometimes these kinds of things are done so that believers will only exalt God in everything. It is grace that provides the strength to do what is necessary. 
It was grace that allowed him to see the exalted things, and it was grace that sustained him later in the preaching of the gospel of those exalted things. He was content with that, and his message to Corinth was that they needed to be content with what they had. He reminds them of the lofty status of apostle and that he performed the true signs of a real apostle. He performed signs, wonders, and miracles. He never became a burden to Corinth, working the entire time he was with them, working with his hands the entire time he was with them. This coming, he said, would be the third time, and he would still not be a burden to them because he considered them his children, and he was glad to be expended for them to do that because he loved them. Those There were those who believed he was being deceptive, and he sarcastically refers to that. We'll look at that sarcasm when we get there. None of the people he sent, including himself, ever took advantage of the Corinthians. All of them conducted themselves as gentlemen, careful to do what is proper and biblical, and he wants them to repent of their evil ways and thoughts so that he won't have to mourn over them. In the final chapter, he does get a bit terse. When he comes this time, the third time, he will be stronger, and he will not spare any of those who are damaging the cause of Christ. The facts, he says, will be confirmed at Corinth by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The proof that they sought that Christ speaks in and through him will be given to them. He challenges them to examine themselves, knowing <coughs> that they need to begin and continue living as though Christ has made a difference in their lives. He challenges them to examine themselves. He wants them to be made complete, that is perfect in Christ, and he writes severely so that hopefully when he gets there, he can be less severe in person. The letter closes with his typical greetings from the other saints and a desire that they have the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So our study of 2 Corinthians will be encouraging. It will be convicting. And as we hear and submit to the teachings that Paul gave to that recalcitrant church, glorifying to God, it will be glorifying to God. Our study will be glorifying to God. And that is the end of everything we do. It is one of the more unusual letters that Paul wrote, in some ways less organized, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, still a blessing to the church of God. In his commentary, Paul Barnett said this, Second Corinthians is very different from the letters between which it was written, First Corinthians and Romans. Whereas each of those letters is in its own way systematic and orderly, 2 Corinthians is on the face of it uneven and digressive. It is no surprise, therefore, that many scholars have suggested that 2 Corinthians is really a collection of letters put together later as a single letter, and that's possible. That's fine. 2 Corinthians presents many inspiring texts and passages to the reader and teacher of God's Word. A quick survey reveals approximately 80 individual verses lending themselves to extended meditation and exposition, apart from the 60 or so constituent paragraphs of that letter. This letter is a rich load for the, for the edification of God's people, a rich load of treasure for the edification of God's people. And in his commentary, Barclay, David Barclay said, It is the least systematic of Paul, all Paul's epistles. It abounds in emotion, showing mingled joy, grief, and indignation. It is intensely personal, and from it we therefore learn more of his life and character than from any other source. This makes it of great value in any study of Paul himself. Section 1 has as its great topic tribulation and consolation in tribulation and has in it an undercurrent of apology darkened by a suppressed indignation. Section 2 is colored by a sorrowful emotion. Section 3 everywhere teems with a feeling of indignation. 
Through the whole letter, there runs an undercurrent of self-defense. The keynote of this book, as well as of 1 Corinthians, is loyalty to Christ. And finally, in his commentary, Charles Hodge gets at the disparities that seem to be competing in this great letter. <clears throat> See if I can find that. <laughs> Funny. So, I just told you that many scholars say this letter is disjointed and things are out of order. So is my PowerPoint. <laughs> Must be infectious. So there's that. We'll get to this in a minute here. Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge's uh, commentary. That the Corinthians had received his former letter with a proper spirit, that it brought them to repentance, led them to excommunicate the incestuous person and call forth on the part of the larger portion of the congregation the manifestation of the warmest affections for the apostle, relieved his mind from a load of anxiety and filled his heart with gratitude to God. On the other hand, the increased boldness and influence of the false teachers, the perverting errors which they inculcated, and the frivolous and calumnious charges which they brought against himself filled him with indignation. This accounts for the abrupt transitions from one subject to another, the sudden changes of tone and manner which characterized this epistle. When writing to the Corinthians as a church obedient, affectionate, and patient, obedient, affectionate, and penitent, there is no limit to his tenderness and love. His great desire seems to be to heal the forgiven, to heal the temporary breach which had occurred between him and them, and to assure his readers that all was forgiven and forgotten and that his heart was entirely theirs. But when he turns to the wicked, designing corruptors of the truth among them, there is a tone of severity to be found in no other of his writings. No, not even in the epistle to the Galatians. Erasmus compares this epistle to a river which sometimes flows in a gentle stream and sometimes rushes down as a torrent, bearing all before it sometimes spreading out like a placid lake, sometimes losing itself, as it were, in the sand and breaking out in its fullness in some unexpected place. Though perhaps the least methodical of Paul's writing, it is the most interesting of his letters as bringing out the man before the reader and revealing his intimate relations to the people for whom he labored. It must be said that he loved the Corinthians. He loved that church. And it's funny that... We have been so designed by God that it, we can love the, who are, those who are the most difficult in our lives, can we not? And in some ways, that love is different, not better, not more important, but different than our love for those who toe the line, if you will, in our lives. Those who get out of order, who are difficult, they need a special kind of care and a special kind of concern. And they need... I think some ways in their hearts, they need to know that you won't give up on them. Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians. They were the most producing, I would say, of a sentiment of giving up of all of his churches. They were the most difficult, maybe even more difficult than the Galatians. The Judaizers were present in Corinth. They were the same Judaizers, same kind of Judaizers that were present in Galatia. They gave false teaching that Paul had to combat. They were welcomed into the pulpit, and Paul had to call them out for that. I am grateful that God has so ordained Kootenai community that we do not welcome into the pulpit false teachers. Paul is going to spend a lot of blood, sweat, and tears writing this letter. 
And then later on when he visits them again, more of the same. And as we go through this letter, we're going to see the man himself, um, what he was like, what what tweaked him, what pleased him. And out of those kinds of things, we will be taught doctrine. We will be taught the doctrine that we can see how to be the kind of people that invest in others, ourselves, our lives, and our love, whether it's our children, our friends, those who need us, there are people in your lives right now that need you. And first Second Corinthians is a testimony of how you stay the course for those who are most needful, who need you the most, and yet are the most difficult. Paul never gives up on the Corinthians. He loves them to the end. And uh I I it's these are there's so many questions that this book has generated in my mind that I don't have answers for that uh I'm just excited to study through it together and maybe we can come to, to some answers on those questions for me <laughs> and for you. Any questions about First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? I'm going I'm to say First Corinthians 97 times in this next two years. But just translate, he means Second Corinthians. Any questions or comments? Brian? Ephesus, Rome. More than likely. He, he traveled, well, we don't have my map up there, which is in the wrong place, but, <laughs> what, which verse is that? I, I, I would. Second Corinthians chapter Yeah, 28. Apart from such external things, he says, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. All the churches. All of his children if you will, all of those that God had used him to turn to the Lord. They were all of a great concern to him, and he loved them. And he, my guess, not guess, I, I'm convinced that he knew probably most, if not all of them, by name. He knew who had been living in sin with his father's wife. He knew who was suing Crestus over a toothbrush. And he knew, and he loved them. He cared for them. He knew them. And so some of what we're going to see in this book is how to act towards those who are the most difficult. Do you have any difficult people in your lives? No, that's a blessing. Well, I, I don't know if it's a blessing or not. Because some of the greatest character shaping we will ever encounter in our lives is learning to deal with those who are the most difficult in our lives as we learn to deal with them biblically, lovingly. And Paul did that in spades with Corinth. And so with that, let's close. Lord, we thank you that we are of the elect, your sheep, and that despite what we do, even after coming to you, you stay with us. If it was up to us, not a single person on this planet in the entire history that it has existed would ever have entered into the realms of heaven. But because of you and because of you alone, there will be a, a great swelling chorus of people who can bow the knee to Jesus Christ, give Him glory and honor. And among those people will be the Corinthians. And uh, I know that Paul, the apostle, who will be there, for him it will be one of his greatest delights. Might we be like that as we study this and as we learn from you, as we hear from your Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture, that we might be the kinds of people who are there for those who need us but that the glory might always go to you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.